Chapter 2. The Church, Where Whole Disciples Are Formed Growing up, I didn't know the Lord. I was raised by wonderful parents in a safe and loving environment, but to my memory I never heard, or perhaps I just never understood, the gospel. I went to church from time to time, and at one point I was even confirmed in a church, but I certainly didn't understand the gospel or have a vibrant relationship with Christ. I remember having a Bible in my room when I was a kid, and sometimes I would read it, but like a lot of people, I would get confused somewhere in Leviticus or Numbers and put it down. When I went to college, I was randomly placed with a roommate who I had never met before. After the first few weeks of school, he began inviting me to a campus ministry Bible study that was going to meet in the laundry room in the basement of the freshman dorm. Not only did I not want to spend my Tuesday nights of my freshman year of college studying the Bible with a bunch of other freshman guys, but it is hard to think of a stranger place to hold a Bible study than a laundry room of a dorm basement. Every week on Monday or Tuesday before the study, he would ask me, Do you want to come to Bible study with me this week? I was able to hold off his press for the first few weeks, but I soon realized that he was not going to stop asking until I went with him. Eventually, I decided that I should go, just once, in hopes that he would not ask me any more. We walked down to the basement together, and I took a teen study Bible that I had from my confirmation. If I am honest, I was terrified. I was terrified that I was going to be seen as an imposter, or that I was going to be unwelcome, or that I would be asked a question I could not answer. The first few minutes we had a cordial conversation, then an awkward icebreaker exercise. When we eventually sat down, everyone around me began grabbing their Bibles. We were told to open up our Bibles to the Book of Jonah. Panic ensued. I had never even heard of the Book of Jonah. How in the world was I supposed to find it? Why could we not be in the Book of Psalms or one of the Gospels? I knew how to find those. But Jonah? I quietly tried to thumb through the pages of my Bible, but unfortunately for me, Jonah is a small book, and I couldn't find it. More panic ensued. Did I have a Bible that did not include the book of Jonah? Did their Bibles have extra books of the Bible? Was this some kind of cult? I thought that maybe I could just look at the contents, but decided against it because then they would know I was an imposter. Eventually, the leader, a sophomore named Nate, who was sitting right next to me, saw what was going on. Without making me feel awkward or like an imposter, he used his own finger to open my Bible to the right page. My anxiety slowly began to subside. I will never forget what happened next. I heard, for the first time I can remember, that God was gracious. He was gracious to a disobedient prophet who had defiantly disobeyed a direct command from God. How could this be true? In my mind, the only appropriate response to disobedience was discipline and judgment. While I learned that those were part of the story as well, I was stunned by God's grace. Does God really extend grace to sinners? I mean, in the face of direct disobedience to God, Jonah could still receive grace and forgiveness and, on top of all of that, then be called on to proclaim God's grace to others? This message absolutely stunned me. 
I then began to wonder if grace like that was available to everyone, maybe someone like me. The next day, the sophomore who led the Bible study invited me to go to the student center for lunch to discuss what we learned the night before. He could tell that not only was I confused for most of it, but that I was becoming more interested in what the rest of the Bible had to say. We ordered from Burger King and sat down in the student center at Colorado State University. As I was eating my hamburger, he pulled out a small booklet that I now know is called The Four Spiritual Laws. In the most uncompelling gospel presentation in the history of the world, he said, I am supposed to read this with you. Seriously. No reason, no lead-in, nothing. Just, I am supposed to read this with you. I could tell he was nervous as he began to read. He said, 1. God loves you and created you to know him personally. Without looking up, he flipped the page and continued. 2. Man is sinful and separated from God, so we cannot know him personally or experience his love. He briefly looked up. I was going to ask him a question to try to break some of the tension, but before I could get a word out, he continued to read. 3. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through Him alone, we can know God personally and experience God's love. This point was the one I was most interested in talking to him about, so I figured he would stop there. But he continued. 4. We must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know God personally and experience His love. At that moment, I met Jesus for the first time. With a whopper in my mouth, I said yes to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. If this story shows anything, it's that evangelistic methods don't save people. God does. I came to faith through the faithfulness of an awkward sophomore college student who was being obedient to disciple students through Scripture and to share the gospel. I spent the next few years bouncing around between campus ministry and church, just trying to figure out what it meant to be a Christian. I was eating up anything and everything I could get my hands on related to discipleship. I desperately wanted to be formed, and I wanted to grow. I went on a few mission trips, learned how to share my faith through the campus ministry, and also met my future wife through the campus ministry. I could not get enough of this stuff. My future mother-in-law called me a spiritual sponge. One thing I began to notice was that a lot of my Christian friends, who had been walking with the Lord for years, seemed not to be all that interested in growing. Most of them were content with where they were in their faith and did not express a lot of interest in growing. As we were wrapping up college, I was feeling like my growth was stunted. Just like my friends, I was having a hard time taking the next steps in my faith. By this point, I had been a Christian for almost four years, and I felt like I was not where I wanted to be in terms of growth, development, and maturity. I wanted to know how to read and understand my Bible. I wanted to understand the basic beliefs of the faith. I wanted to know how to practice basic spiritual disciplines. I basically wanted to know how I could grow as a Christian, but I was realizing that I did not have a guide. My discipleship felt aimless because my discipleship was churchless. Up until this point, most of my development and growth happened outside the church. 
I was hoping the church would be the place I could take the next steps toward learning the story of Scripture, the basics of the faith, and basic spiritual disciplines. Surely the local church was the place I could find these things. You need to go to seminary. We were having one of our premarital sessions with our pastor, whom I deeply respect. He asked us about our future plans for jobs, family, etc. Specifically, he asked, What are you going to do after you graduate from college? I responded by saying something like, I am not sure, but I know that the most important thing to me right now is growing in my relationship with Christ. Looking back on that conversation, I don't think I was expressing a call to ministry. I was simply expressing what I thought was a call into deeper discipleship, to taking steps of maturity as a Christian. I was trying to tell him that regardless of what my future vocation was, my highest priority was growing in my relationship with Christ. In hindsight, I was trying to say that I wanted to be a deep disciple. I was less interested in what I wanted to do and more interested in who I wanted to be. My pastor looked a bit surprised and said, Oh, you want to really grow. You need to go to seminary for that. What is seminary? I asked. I was so far outside of the Christian subculture that I had never even heard of seminary, but his answer, nonetheless, seemed strange to me. Why can't I grow and be trained to do these things in the church? Isn't the church supposed to disciple me? Isn't that what a pastor is supposed to do? In retrospect, this conversation revealed one of the most tragic lies most American Christians believe today, that we have to leave the church in order to lead in the church. Don't get me wrong, I ended up having an incredible experience in seminary. In fact, my years in seminary were the most formative years of my life. But at that time, I did not understand that we had a system in which churches were relying on outside organizations to make deep disciples. Were all churches delegating growth and discipleship to other institutions and organizations? I didn't go to seminary to be an academic. I had to go to seminary to learn how to be a disciple. I will fight for the importance of seminaries because I strongly believe that they and lots of other organizations are invaluable as they help us train, equip, and send some of the finest men and women in the world into ministry. But this was different from that. It seemed like the church was not simply recommending seminary to supplement the discipleship of the church, but it was delegating its responsibility to make disciples. Let's be clear, the church is called to make disciples, and it is time for us to stop delegating our responsibility. Other organizations can come alongside the church, but they can never replace the church. A lot of discipleship from beginning to end happens outside the church. That is because we have asked the question, where can discipleship happen, instead of asking the better question, where should discipleship happen? I was teaching at a conference several months ago in a room full of church leaders. I asked them to raise their hand if the majority of their formation happened outside the church. Over 80% raised their hand. Again, these are men and women who are committed to the ministry of the gospel and to the local church, yet most of their most significant formation happened outside the church. This is not just my story. 
It is the story of countless people who came to faith outside of the church and who were primarily discipled outside of the local church. We were saved through a Christian organization and tried to get involved in the church, but in order to be formed and shaped, we had to pursue outside opportunities for development. Bible colleges, seminaries, Bible studies, campus ministries, missions organizations, and other non-profits have stepped in to fill the gap local churches have left. Praise God for these organizations, but they will never be able, nor do they want, to replace the local church. This is why I am writing this book. I believe with every fiber of my being that the local church is God's primary means of making holistic disciples of Christ. The local church is meant to be the primary spiritual guide for disciples who are on the journey of growing deeper in the love and knowledge of God. The local church is the place where we are formed, equipped, and sent out to make more disciples. Think about your own discipleship journey. Where did most of the growth happen for you? Did it happen on the mission field, in a college or seminary, through an on-campus college ministry, or in the local church? I love hearing stories of rich, robust, and deep discipleship happening in our local churches, but in my experience they are too few and far between. God is definitely using His church to fulfill her mission, but if I am honest, most stories I hear tell of the most significant aspects of formation happening outside of the church. If that is not your story, then praise God. But it is important to realize that is the story for a lot of us. What would it look like for us to really believe that God's mission is taking place primarily through the local church, your local church? Do you have the conviction and belief that the church is the primary context for holistic discipleship? And if so, do you have a philosophy and practice of discipleship to execute on that conviction? Disciple Your Next Pastor How much do you currently rely on outside organizations to make disciples? Do you use them to supplement discipleship, or are you delegating discipleship to them? Again, the church needs outside organizations for specialized training. That is not what I am talking about. I am simply talking about your desire, ability, and practice to help someone move from not believing to believing, and then from immature to mature faith. Someone should be able to come to faith, grow in the faith, and walk in Christian maturity solely from being formed by a local church. That is the basic sequence of the gospel. We are orphans who have been adopted into Christ's family. Then, as adopted infants, we learn how to grow into mature members of the household, all of which can happen in and through the local church. Here is an interesting case study I ask myself from time to time. Let's say that right now there is a non-believer named Jake at the local coffee shop close to your church. What would it take for your church to meet Jake, a non-believer, and provide opportunities and training for Jake to eventually become the next lead pastor in 20 years? First, you would need to have a culture and practice of evangelism so that Jake would have the opportunity to hear the gospel, repent of his sins, be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, and be welcomed into the church family. 
Then you would need to have community-based discipleship environments that train and equip him in the basics of the faith. Perhaps classes on how to read the Bible, the basics of the faith, spiritual disciplines, etc. These opportunities would need to be sequenced in such a way as to have introductory environments and advanced environments. In other words, you would need to think about both accessibility and growing in maturity. Do you think your church could disciple its next lead pastor? How about a young woman named Jill who comes to services occasionally but is not a believer? Could you develop her into your next women's director or Bible study teacher? Do you have an established pathway for her to hear and respond to the gospel and get the right kind of training to grow into a mature Christian? Would you have to delegate a lot of it to outside organizations, or would you just use them as supplementary to what is already going on in your church? This is an exercise I think about regularly in my own ministry context. What if the next lead pastor of our church, or our next women's director, is not yet a Christian? Am I providing opportunities for them to hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, be formed by the gospel? and learn to communicate the gospel, all in the context of the local church? Of course, I might want him to get specialized training outside the church as well, but would I be able to build a foundation for him, or would he be almost entirely reliant on outside organizations for his growth and development? Put simply, can you form a pagan into a pastor? This example does not just apply to trying to develop pastors or ministry leaders. This is equally applicable to anyone in any vocation, in any age group. Is your church equipping business leaders to be faithful in their context? Are you helping moms and dads faithfully embody the gospel in their homes as they seek to disciple their children? Are you providing opportunities for your church to learn how to share their faith in their spheres of influence? To put it bluntly, what if an 18-year-old new believer, just like I did with my pastor, came to you and said, I want to grow as a disciple? What would you tell him? Is your church prepared to receive an 18-year-old kid, like me, and slowly develop a maturing Christian over the next few decades? what the local church is. The local church is the primary place that God intends to make and form holistic disciples. We cannot disconnect the task of deep discipleship from the institution that owns it, the local church. The local church is the tool, God's providential instrument, that He uses to shape and form His people into maturing followers of Christ. The local church is where we are sanctified in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2. Built up in the faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 12. It is where the gospel is proclaimed. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 18. Where Christ reigns as head. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. It is where holistic disciples are formed. The local church is not just one of many organizations God uses equally in His mission to make disciples. It is the primary context for holistic discipleship. I believe that when discipleship happens in the context of the local church, it can and should be qualitatively different from discipleship that happens outside the local church. 
That conviction is formed not because of what the local church does, but, more important, because of what the local church is. Every local church shares in four distinctives that uniquely set it apart as the primary context for deep discipleship. Place, people, purpose, and presence. Deep discipleship is grounded in a specific place, wherever it meets, with a specific people, the church family, for a specific purpose, mission and Christ-likeness, and empowered by God Himself, presence. This definition is also intentionally Trinitarian. The Father adopts His children into His universal and local family through the work of Christ the Son in order to equip them for mission and Christ-likeness through the indwelling and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. This has been God's mission since Pentecost, and that mission continues in Christ's church today, which makes the local church the ideal context for holistic discipleship. Place First, the local church is in a place. It is visible and situated. Historically, theologians have made an important distinction between the local church and the universal church. The universal church, according to Greg Allison, is the fellowship of all Christians that extends from the day of Pentecost until the second coming, incorporating both the deceased believers who are presently in heaven and the living believers from all over the world. The universal church is made visible by the local church in embodied, temporal, and contextual congregations. The local church is manifested in local communities of people who regularly gather to worship the triune God, proclaim His Word, participate in the ordinances, sacraments, carry out church discipline, and engage non-Christians with the gospel. These local communities of faith are visible and situated. They are visible because they have locations, leaders, members, etc., they are situated because they are birthed in and minister to a specific context. Local churches are visible manifestations that testify to the gospel in specific contexts. The universal church and the local church are both indispensable elements to God's purposes. Christians are meant to be encouraged, exhorted, and formed by both the universal and the local church. We are formed by the universal church when we are taught and accept the faith that has once been delivered to the saints, Jude chapter 3, when we learn from saints from centuries past, or when we listen to sermons, read blogs, or are shaped through worship music from other congregations. The universal church reminds us that we should read Irenaeus, Athanasius, and Augustine, and other church fathers. We are meant to celebrate the work of the Reformers and learn from their insights. We should also engage in dialogue with brothers and sisters from other denominations, churches, and ministries. We are meant to bridge denominational lines, pray for one another, and encourage one another in the faith. Seminaries, Bible colleges, community Bible studies— Christian publishers and content creators and campus ministries are beautiful manifestations of the universal church contributing to the health and vibrancy of the church as a whole. However, no matter how beneficial these expressions of the universal church may be, they can never replace the visible and situated local church.
We should all participate in expressions of the universal church, but participation in the universal church must be grounded in participation in the local church. The point I am making is this. Where discipleship happens matters. Virtual discipleship cannot create deep disciples. Deep discipleship is intensely local. Formation is meant to be personal, embodied, and incarnational. A blog, an online professor, or a video-streamed sermon may be able to aid discipleship, but they cannot form disciples the way the local church can. We are in danger of adopting primary pathways of discipleship that are digital and disembodied. For example, with the rise of podcasts or online churches, disciples can stream messages from any pastor or church they want. We have access to some of the best digital resources imaginable, but the digital and disembodied discipleship strategy will never form holistic disciples. Digital resources should certainly be used to supplement what the local church is doing, but should never replace embodied discipleship. Pastors and ministers are called by God to shepherd the flock of God in front of them, not on their Twitter feed. Holistic discipleship is meant to be visible and situated. Why? Because the Christian faith is inherently incarnational. In our digital and disembodied world, place matters more than ever. Holistic discipleship in the local church is possible when we emphasize that discipleship is in person, it is visible, it is messy, it is incarnational. The Christian faith is essentially fleshly, visible. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1 verse 14. In the Incarnation, God the Son demonstrates for us the importance of visibility and context. The Son condescends to His creation in order to make Himself known. He did it in time, visibly and contextually. In a time in which discipleship is trending toward the digital and the disembodied, the local church is the place where we are able to show that formation is not solely intellectual and immaterial, but also physical. We are formed by our places, and we form our places. The local church shows that discipleship is not inherently Gnostic or disembodied, but deeply human and incarnational. Why do place and context matter? Because our whole person matters to God. Discipleship is not just the transfer of ideas, but the transformation of the whole person. It is not just the shaping of minds, but also the shaping of persons. In the local church, we have the opportunity to express that in beautiful ways. Though this is not an example from the local church, it is an example of the importance of place in discipleship. When I was a seminary student, one of the faculty members, well known for his expertise in the New Testament, walked through a serious family tragedy. His wife, while riding her bike, had a serious accident and withstood significant injuries specifically to her brain. There was a time when they were not sure what her mental capacities would be, if any. Watching that professor over the next few weeks was as formative as any other experience in seminary. He was not just a great professor because he taught excellent content. He was a great professor because he showed us how to trust God in the midst of deep suffering. 
I could never have learned this if I was taking his class online or simply reading his book. I learned to trust his teaching because I was learning to trust his life. His life was the curriculum that semester, not the syllabus. That is why embodiment is indispensable to forming whole disciples. We are meant to share not just great ideas, but also our lives with one another. We can only share our lives together if we commit ourselves to embodiment and relationship that is visible and situated. Local churches have an opportunity to call people to this kind of discipleship in a unique way. People We have discussed the importance of place for discipleship. That discipleship needs to happen in the context of a visible and situated community. The people of God also play an indispensable role in discipleship. By people of God, I am not referring to all Christians everywhere, but specifically to local church families. In the New Testament, the local church is portrayed as a family, as the household of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we become members of the family of God, which is manifested in the local church. This family consists of spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters who care for and shape one another. For Christians, formation happens in the context of a family, both nuclear and ecclesial. We are a part of a family that forms. The danger of de-emphasizing the role of local church families in our formation is that we communicate that discipleship is pursued through spiritual orphanhood. Discipleship that happens primarily outside of the local church is discipleship that happens primarily outside of the context of the spiritual family. This kind of discipleship means we tend to act as if we are spiritual orphans, not adopted sons and daughters. Spiritual orphans do not have spiritual fathers and mothers to care for them. They do not have spiritual siblings to encourage them. They do not have their own spiritual sons and daughters to grow in the faith. In this setting, spiritual orphans learn only to look out for themselves because they do not have a family to consider. The good of the one is more important than the good of the whole. The growth of the one is more important than the growth of the whole. Spiritual orphans become primarily concerned with their own formation, not the formation of the whole family. They have no need to consider the rest of the family, just themselves. Often spiritual orphans are interested in growing in a knowledge of God, but not a love of neighbor. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2 However, when we root deep discipleship in the local church, there are no spiritual orphans. The local church is living out the gospel truth that we are no longer orphans, but we are now sons and daughters who are growing into spiritual adults. In the local church, the formation of the whole person and the whole family matters. Each member of the family is indispensable to the growth of the rest of the family. The family members need one another. One of the primary characteristics of this family is that they care for one another as much as they care for themselves. This is a key characteristic of holistic discipleship, that we are to pursue not just our own formation, but the formation of the whole family. 
What would it look like for you to create a culture where everyone, in love and charity, pursued not just their own formation, but also the formation of the household? Holistic disciples are not only seeking their own spiritual health, but the spiritual health of the whole family. They understand that the health of the family is essential to their own wholeness. Jesus alludes to this virtue in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Notice what he is saying here. Though he is not speaking specifically of the local church, he is showing us that the faith is inherently communal. Love of God and love of self by itself is not whole. We are called to love God, self, and neighbor. Our closest neighbors are those in our own house and in our own spiritual house, the local church. When discipleship is removed from the context of God's people, it can tend to be characterized by competition or comparison. For example, if your primary formation came in the form of an academic environment, a nonprofit, or an online platform, there can tend to be competition among participants. There is competition for grades, feedback, the attention of teachers, and perhaps for opportunities like a job after the course is over. In all likelihood, you will not know most of your classmates five to ten years from now, so it is easy not to be invested in their own spiritual growth. Spiritual orphans see other spiritual orphans as competition, not as family. In discipleship environments like this, we are implicitly formed into the belief that our formation matters more than the formation of others. This is an intensely individualistic way of thinking about discipleship. We have no invested interest in seeing others growing in holistic formation. Our sole investment is in our own growth, and anyone who gets in the way of that is seen as a threat to our own development. The New Testament teaches us that we are supposed to view our church as a family in a special sense, which means that our discipleship is motivated by love for God and one another, not competition. We are to seek one another's interests, not just our own. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 The church is marked by a familial type of love, a love that goes deeper than biological family. The church is to love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. The Thessalonians are encouraged in this virtue as well. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. The author of Hebrews contends, Let brotherly love continue. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Peter encourages Christians to continue to pursue godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Discipleship in the local church is meant to cultivate brotherly and sisterly, fatherly and motherly love among members of the same household. Discipleship that happens in the context of the spiritual family is healthier than discipleship that happens in the context of a spiritual orphanage. When we pursue holistic discipleship in the local church, we are as invested in one another's growth as much as we are invested in our own.
Discipleship is not meant to be characterized by competition, but by charity, the kind of charity that should characterize a healthy family. A lot changes when the people you are learning alongside are not just classmates, online avatars, or Twitter handles, but members of the same body. When we connect discipleship to the local church, we are highlighting the theological truths that all of us are adopted sons and daughters, that no son's or daughter's growth is more important than the others, and that we need one another in order to grow as a healthy family. So, what does it look like to pursue charity, not competition with the people of God? Discipleship in a family-like environment is meant to produce a familial kind of love for one another. In the local church, we are not trying to create isolated disciples, but members of a household. At the village church, I helped start a discipleship environment called the Training Program. It is a one-year, intense discipleship environment in the context of the local church. The students write doctrinal statements, read huge portions of Scripture, memorize large passages, participate in spiritual disciplines, and more. It is one of the more spiritually intense environments I have seen in the local church. One of my concerns when we created this environment was making sure students interacted through the lens of charity, not competition. I wanted to make sure they saw one another as members of the same family, who were meant to build up one another, not see one another as competition. It would be easy to see spiritual competition in an environment like this. In light of that, and because this is a local church discipleship environment, I make charity, or familial love, a requirement of each participant. We include the following paragraph in the syllabus. The greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. Disciples of Jesus are called to be marked by their love for God and their love for neighbor. Training program participants are going to be called to make progress in their walk with Christ, and also to demonstrate a posture of love towards God and one another. Discipleship is never an individual task, but by definition is community-oriented. While communal discipleship presents many challenges, it also presents many opportunities for us to be charitable with one another. A charitable and loving spirit is required of all training program participants. Something I have seen over and over again in discipleship environments outside the church is student frustration when other participants are in a different place in their spiritual formation journey. For example, in a seminary classroom, more advanced students may get frustrated when less advanced students are monopolizing the classroom time by asking elementary questions. Perhaps the professor has covered this material over and over again, but the same student keeps asking basic questions. It would be easy for other students to view that student and their questions as a threat to their continual growth. In fact, they have paid to be there, they don't know this other student very well, and it's easy to understand why they could get frustrated. Or sometimes the opposite is true. More elementary students can get frustrated when the conversation is too advanced for them to keep up. After all, they are here to be formed and have no investment in seeing others in the class formed. I have seen this happen over and over again. 
not just in academic environments, but in campus ministries and Bible studies as well. But in the context of our spiritual family, we have no need to compare ourselves with one another, but to encourage one another. For example, in the local church, we can expect people to be at all kinds of different levels of maturity, just like different members of a family. There are spiritual fathers and sons, spiritual daughters and mothers. Some may have been walking with the Lord for decades and others for weeks. Some may have advanced degrees from seminaries, and others may not know the first thing about how to study their Bible. So, how do you have all members of the family pursuing maturity together without falling back into the habits of comparison, competition, and frustration? We need to see one another as family. What if more mature saints viewed themselves as fathers and mothers who are meant to encourage and exhort younger believers as if they were their own sons and daughters? What if sons and daughters championed the growth and development of their more mature fathers and mothers? What if we were as invested in one another's growth as we are invested in our own? What if the holistic discipleship of others mattered as much as our own? What if that is a part of holistic discipleship? I once had a student named David in a discipleship environment in the church. He had a THM and was considering doctoral work in ecclesiology. In the same class, I also had a student named Samantha, a mother of five, with no formal theological training. David was thrilled and excited to be in the class, but Samantha was a bit nervous. At the beginning of the class, we introduced the importance of charity, as noted, and that each participant needed to have a personal interest in the growth of others in the class, not just their own growth. When we were spending time on complex theological issues that David was just eating up, I could tell that Samantha was a bit lost and confused. She could have responded by checking out, maybe by not coming back, or just by expressing frustration that she was not personally benefiting from the discussion. Instead, she responded by encouraging him, by pressing into the conversation, and by expressing thanksgiving to God that he was growing David. She was as excited about his formation as she was her own. This is how spiritual siblings should treat one another. In the local church, we celebrate the growth of our brothers and sisters because it makes the whole family healthier. The opposite was true as well. When we were spending time on some more simple elementary issues, David could have been frustrated because he had covered these things before, but instead he rejoiced in the growth of his sister. They both realized that they are family. What does a mother do when she sees her son crawl for the first time? She rejoices. It is always a joy to see a family member mature. What does a daughter do when she sees her father learn something new? She rejoices. It is always a joy to see older family members continue to learn. This is how healthy churches and holistic discipleship cultures are sustained in the local church. A loving family environment is essential to deep discipleship. It is where newer and younger brothers and sisters are able to ask simple questions and their siblings celebrate their growth. 
It's a place where older, more mature brothers and sisters are able to grow and mature as fast as the spirit will allow them, and the younger siblings are able to look up to their older siblings and celebrate what God is doing in their lives. I cannot emphasize how important this is. A culture of charity, curated in the local church, where we pursue the love and knowledge of God and neighbor together, is what makes discipleship inside the context of the local church qualitatively better than discipleship outside the local church. In the local church, we are reminded that we are not spiritual orphans, but adopted sons and daughters, part of the whole family of God. Only the whole family can create whole disciples. Purpose The local church is the visible and situated place, adopted family of God, people, that is being equipped for mission and Christ-likeness, purpose. Deep discipleship in the local church is different because the purpose of the church is different from any other institution on the planet. In his letter to the Ephesians, we can get some insight into Paul's hope and purpose for local churches. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. While there is a lot to unpack here, I want to focus on two things, mission and Christlikeness. Those are the purposes of the church. Discipleship in the local church is qualitatively different because we are pursuing mission and Christlikeness, purposes unique to the local church. What is Jesus doing right now? According to Ephesians chapter 4, Jesus is ascended in the heavens, and He is building and gifting His church for greater mission and unity. He is giving the church leaders, who equip all the saints for ministry, for the purpose of the whole family being built up in maturity. If that is what Jesus' mission is, then that is the local church's mission as well. The central point of this passage is that Jesus is distributing gifts to the church to unite them in mission and build them up in maturity. Ephesians chapter 4 is not just about what the church should be doing, but about what Jesus is doing for and through His church. He is giving His church leaders so that the whole church may be equipped for ministry. Our purpose should be aligned with His purpose. One trend that is common in the church is an expert-amateur divide. There are the teachers and shepherds, and then there are the saints. The divide between the experts and amateurs is easily seen when the experts, those who are employed by the church, think their job is to do ministry for the saints, not with the saints. 
They are on the stage, writing curriculum, holding microphones, and leading ministries. This looks like pastors who read and teach the Bible in such a way that their congregation thinks, I can never read the Bible like that. This looks like worship leaders who are more interested in putting on a worship performance for an audience than they are interested in calling the congregation into greater participation. The experts are perceived to be the ones who really do the work of ministry. Experts are seen to have some kind of talent, gift, or skill set that sets them apart from the rest of the congregation. They are the spiritually elite. Meanwhile, there is also a group of people who perceive themselves to be the amateurs. Rarely are they given the opportunity to do ministry, but they passively receive the ministry done by the experts. Amateurs are the beneficiaries of the labors of ministry of the experts. The amateurs get to sit in the audience, consuming from the work of the experts. Too often, ministry experts enjoy the distance between themselves and the congregation of amateurs. They enjoy being seen as the experts, and they have little incentive to bridge the gap, so instead they make the gap greater. But that is not what Paul outlines as the purpose of the church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Ministers and pastors and leaders aren't called to do all the ministry for the congregation, but to serve and prepare the congregation so the so-called amateurs can carry out the work of the ministry. In other words, truly great teachers do not create distance between themselves and their students. They are set on removing that distance by helping their students learn. Likewise, students do not only want to observe great teachers, they want to learn so they can participate. Leaders in the church do not create distance between themselves and the people they are leading. They equip them for the work of ministry. Ephesians chapter 4 is not calling teachers, ministers, and pastors who feel called to do the work of ministry for the church, but with the church. God is not interested in creating an audience. He wants participants. Paul is insistent that one of the main purposes of the church is to invite all people into the work of ministry, not reserve it for a select few. In the church there is not a group of people who do ministry and a separate group of people who receive the work of ministry. All members of the family are called to do the work ministry, and all members of the family are called to receive the ministry of others. We are one body with many members. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. That means leaders are supposed to bridge the gap. Churches that want to create a culture of deep discipleship call on everybody to participate. They want to get all people, every single member, involved in the mission of building up the body of Christ. The second purpose outlined for the church is that all members are being called to maturity growing in Christ-likeness. This may be one of the biggest gaps I currently see in ministry philosophies. As I have already outlined, most maturing happens outside of the family of God. Paul insists that the purpose of the local church is not only to equip the saints for ministry, but to lead them into growth in their faith and knowledge of the Son of God, maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13. God's goal for Christ's body and for each individual member is continual maturation into the image of Christ. No other organization shares that same purpose. Churchless discipleship is purposeless discipleship. 
Deep discipleship in the church is to help you and the people you lead learn God's will for your life. God's will for your life is Christ-likeness. There is no other corporate body in the world other than the local church that has been given that mission. The local church is the people of God, who in all kinds of different contexts and situations are equipping and pointing people to the fullness of maturity in Christ. If the end of discipleship is Christ-likeness, then all of our ministry efforts should be aiming people toward that end. F. F. Bruce highlights this as he argues, The glorified Christ provides the standard at which his people are to aim. The corporate Christ cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. The local church is the family that is growing up in Christ. What Paul is aiming for in Ephesians is that gifted people in the church have the responsibility of helping others find and use their gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. That process will continue until all believers mature into the measure of the fullness of Christ. The purpose of the local church is to point people to that end and equip them on that journey. The primary purpose of discipleship in the local church is maturing in Christ together. Presence The local church is the visible and situated, place, adopted family of God, people, that is being equipped for mission and Christlikeness, purpose, through the indwelling and empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. Presence Paul reminds the local church at Corinth of this important truth. He asks them, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 Paul is speaking specifically to the local church, as indicated by the plural you, not just individual believers. Further, the plural you indicates that Paul is not referring to individual believers, but to the corporate body, the church. In this instance, he calls them God's temple. Paul uses a word to refer specifically not to the entire temple complex, but to the actual sanctuary, the presence of God. In the Old Covenant, God's presence resided in the temple, but now he resides in his church. Similarly, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, the church is referred to as the temple, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, the church is a spiritual house. Paul's theology of the empowering presence of God guides his philosophy of ministry in the local church. He is saying that the local church is indwelt by God himself. The local church needs to be reminded that we are indwelt and empowered by the presence of God. At the end of the day, it does not matter what your strategy and structure are if you are not relying on and celebrating the presence of God in the local church. Ministry in the local church is fundamentally different because it is fueled and empowered by the presence of God. At the end of the day, there is no philosophy of ministry that is better than the presence of God. The presence of God is better than a ministry philosophy when it comes to forming holistic disciples. In God's presence, we are formed into whole people. God's presence is certainly not limited to the local church, but God is particularly present with His people when they gather. He is present with us as we sing, preach, and celebrate the Lord's table and baptism. 
The presence of God is better than any ministry strategy, and the local church is full of the presence of God. Conclusion The local church is uniquely appointed, in God's divine providence and wisdom, to make disciples. I certainly believe local churches should collaborate with one another and with other organizations as they seek to participate in the mission of God, but collaboration is not delegation. The local church cannot delegate discipleship to others. I don't believe any local church sets out to delegate their discipleship responsibilities of their church. I believe it happens over time. But it is time for the church to pick up the mantle as the primary discipleship engine of the family of God. That is what Jesus wants us to do. Main Ideas 1. Churchless discipleship is aimless discipleship. 2. The church is called to make disciples, and it is time for us to stop delegating our responsibility. Other organizations can come alongside the church, but they can never replace the church. 3. The local church is the visible and situated adopted family of God that is being equipped for mission and Christlikeness through the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Questions for Discussion 1. Do you agree that the local church should be the primary vehicle for discipleship? Why or why not? 2. Do you agree that, in large part, the local church has outsourced discipleship to parachurch organizations? If so, how have you seen that play out? What impact does that have on Christians and on churches? 3. Has your church taken up its mantle as the primary discipleship vehicle of its members, or has it outsourced discipleship to other organizations? To-do list 1. Have each person discussing the book share his or her discipleship journey, whether it has happened primarily in the local church or in organizations outside the local church. 2. What would it take for your church to meet a non-believer and provide opportunities for training him to eventually become the next lead pastor in 20 years? 3. Pull out the list of ideas you began to jot down after listening and discussing the introduction. Try refining them in light of the last two chapters. How might your proposed treatment plan for the church's discipleship disease be implemented in your church?